So I want to spend a few minutes this morning talking about love. We're going to talk about the love chapter specifically. All right, everybody knows what I mean by the love chapter, right? 1 Corinthians 13, a favorite for many of us, but I would suspect it's probably the hands-down favorite chapter in the Bible for non-Christians. Right? They may not know anything else about the Bible, but they can probably quote chunks of 1 Corinthians 13. Because people love the love chapter, right? It's everywhere. Earlier this week, we were in a kitchen store in Williamsburg, and I think like an uncredited excerpt of it was printed in what I think might have been a soap dish. <laughs> love is patient and kind. Apparently, dirt is not, so it's got to go, and you put it in a soap dish. I have no idea why you put the love chapter in a soap dish. It might not have been a soap dish. I'd get confused in kitchen stores, but it looked like a soap dish to me. I couldn't imagine it being useful for anything else. The love chapter is a very handy thing for marital counseling. It sounds great at weddings. Probably a lot of us had it read at our wedding, right? And it's excellent, right? It's really good advice on how to live compatibly in marriage. But the love chapter isn't actually about marriage or romance, it's really useful for family counseling, right? Great advice for how to interact and, and deal with all those other sinful people in your family. But it's not about families either. The love chapter is actually about how to get along in a church. I'm not joking. This part's serious, right? For all of its usefulness at weddings and in counseling, the love chapter is actually about how you use your spiritual gifts in a church environment without being an arrogant jerk. And so the Cliff Notes version for this morning, if you got to go because you got a lunch appointment, is this, don't be an arrogant jerk. But there is more to it than that, and so let's go ahead and take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The Corinthian church was a wealthy and proud church with abundant gifts and talents. In their eyes, they were doing pretty well. From Paul's perspective, they were a train wreck. They had a raging sin problem. They had all kinds of infighting, but the thing that just tainted almost every aspect of their worship was that they were prideful, selfish, status conscious, and unloving. They were rich, talented jerks. Now, chapter 13 sits directly between two chapters that discuss spiritual gifts in the church. That is the topic of chapters 12 and 14. Paul didn't just interrupt that conversation to go down a rabbit trail on love. It is a continuation of the discussion on spiritual gifts. Instead, he is speaking of love in direct contrast to the exact same gifts that he identified in chapter 12. That's how I can confidently stand here and say that the actual focus of the chapter is on the comparative value of love versus spiritual gifts and the nature of love in the body of Christ rather than the nature of love in marriage or in a family. We could do a whole series on the love chapter, but we're not going to right now. We are continuing our series that looks at the adventures of the New Testament church, the things that were going on in the early church and how they apply to us in the 21st century here in Virginia. And so rather than spend weeks looking at verse by verse and word by word, we are going to look at the three main ideas that Paul is expressing in chapter 13, that love is the most important virtue, why it's the most important virtue, and then what exactly love is. So we will begin by discussing Paul's major point in this passage, that love is the most important virtue. I want you to listen carefully to Paul's words in verses 1 through 3 to realize just how important love is when you really reflect on the things that we think of as gigantic, awesome, and amazing that he says are nothing compared to love. So so listen in particular to the alls and the nothings. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
Right, Paul is not mincing words here. Love is more important than any of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because when you listen to these verses, and he talks about tongues and prophecy and understanding and knowledge and faith, these are the exact same spectacular gifts given to the church by the Holy Spirit that he had described in chapter 12. And here he says that without love, they are worthless and that he is nothing. He says that love is more important than any amount of charity, any amount of personal suffering and sacrifice, and that, that even the ability to work miracles without love gains the church nothing. We could have all the Bible knowledge in the world and be able to preach the gospel like Paul himself. But if we're unloving, it's just a bunch of irritating noise that makes it impossible to hear and understand the message. And it's so irritating, it drives people away from the body of Christ. Have you ever known any Christians like that? Because unfortunately I have, and it's, and it's painful to watch, and it's sad because they have, they have tremendous gifts and tremendous abilities and so much knowledge that can be used to build people up and build up the body of Christ, and yet they tend to leave a trail of destruction in their wake, driving people away from churches and away from the church as a whole because they lack love question we have to ask ourselves, not just this morning, but, but quite frequently, is does any part of these verses describe us? Does it describe me? Am I the clanging symbol? Right? Am I the guy who's sacrificing tremendously, but for no purpose because I lack love? Right? Am I the, the person who's full of gifts that are worthless for the church because I can't put love on it? And I pray that for each of us, the answer is no. But the point is, we need to honestly ask ourselves if there is any aspect of these verses that is true in our lives. And if there is, we need to repent of it. Now, we might logically ask why love is the most important virtue. I've given you one sort of reason here. Obviously, that without love, we drive people away from the body of Christ. Paul gives us an answer in verses 8 to 13. And these are verses that often feel unrelated to the rest of the chapter. I have spent a lot of years struggling with, what does this have to do with that? Why are we all of a sudden talking about childhood and grown-uphood and mirrors? And what does that have to do with love? Is this related or is this not related? Should they put a chapter break here or not put a chapter break here? But the reality is that these verses unite with the others to make a single point, that love is most important because love lasts forever, and no other gifts or virtues do. By the time that Christ returns, the rest of the gifts and the virtues from chapter 12 will become pointless. Verses 8 to 10 say, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, that's when Christ returns. That's what that phrase means. When Christ returns, the partial will pass away. So when Christ returns, we will all know everything we need to know. There will not be a need for certain people to be specially gifted by the Holy Spirit with knowledge. 
When Christ returns, there will be nothing left to prophesy about. Because all the good stuff has happened. Right? When Christ returns, then the gifts and the abilities that are very valuable to us now as a church for building us up and strengthening us in this stage of our maturity and development, they become irrelevant because we are fully mature. We are perfected by the coming of our Lord and Savior. That's the point of that analogy about childhood and becoming an adult. We no longer need the things that were valuable to us as children. We no longer need the gifts that are valued to us in this stage of development because we'll be perfect. The point of the mirror, right? 2,000 years ago, mirror technology was not very good, so it was dim. When Christ returns, we see everything perfect, so we don't need, will not need the special gifting of knowledge and understanding because we will all know and understand. We will see Christ here. All our gifts will pass away and our other virtues will become unnecessary, but for all eternity we're going to love. right? And so even, even amongst all the virtues, the love is going to stand out after Christ returns. That's why Paul says in verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And I think the reason is that when Christ returns... As the great hymn, It's Well With My Soul, says, is the part I've always loved, our faith will be our sight. We won't need faith in things that can't be proven because we will see Christ. We'll be in the presence of God. Similarly, hope in the Bible sense means a confident expectation of things to come. There'll be nothing left to hope for because the perfect will be here. Love endures, right? All eternity, we will be loving. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is what you will be doing in the new heaven and the new earth. It is what we will be doing a thousand years from now. It is what we will be doing a million years from now. It is what we'll be doing a hundred million years from now. So we'd better get started practicing. I will add a second reason why love is the most important virtue. And it's not going to be from this text. I normally try to stay really tight to the text, so I hope you'll forgive me. But I, I think I am justified because I'm going to pull out the fact that Jesus said so. I feel like I always get a pass when I use that, right? John 13, 34 and 35 gives us Christ's new commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So love in the church matters a lot. right? Paul says that love matters more than anything else we do. And Jesus is clear that how we love is the sign to an unbelieving world that we are followers of Jesus Christ. It's not about how smart we are or how talented we are or how generous we are that will make a difference in fulfilling our Christ-given mission to make disciples of all nations. It will be, those things are valuable, but it will be loving. It will be how loving we are that will make the difference in reaching a darkened and increasingly hopeless world with the good news of Jesus Christ. 
I think one of the beautiful things about these verses is that while we may never be able to do some of these spectacular things that Paul talks about in those first three verses, each of us has the ability to love. All right, I may never have the courage to deliver up my body to be burned, but I can love. I may not speak prophecy or move mountains, but I can love, and you can too. Right? Each of us can be spectacular at loving other people, and we are commanded to be so. The call to love one another applies to every believer, and Paul says it's our number one priority, more than our ministry, more than our mission, more than our teaching, more than our preaching. So the question is, is loving one another your number one priority? Is it my number one priority? Well, having explained that love is the most important virtue, Paul then takes the middle portion of chapter 13 to explain what love is. And I appreciate that he does because there was a lot of confusion then about what love was, and there are lots of confusion today about what love is. So I want you to remember this passage is written to church members to help them get along with one another. So love is not about a feeling, it's not about an emotion, it's not about bear hugs and sloppy kisses. It is a set of virtues and qualities and actions designed to help people get along together in community. Some of them prevent problems. Others of them help resolve problems, but the interesting thing is they all relate to interpersonal problems. And I think that's a very significant statement about life in the church, both then and now. I'm going to walk back through those qualities that are found in verses 4 through 7. But as I do, I want you to, to think through the implications of Paul saying that love is each of these things. Because I don't think the qualities make sense unless he expected them to be needed. Paul wouldn't even need to describe love if he didn't know that churches then and churches now would be full of recovering sinners who would require us to show these qualities in order to avoid destroying the church. Love is patient and kind. Clearly, Paul is expecting there to be some people in our church who will try our patience and towards whom it will be difficult to be kind. Now, our culture tells us to walk away from people like that. Our culture tells us to answer back in the way that they spoke to us. Our culture says, run away. Our culture says, shut them out. But love calls us to a higher standard, to be patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Paul naturally expects us to be better at some things than other people in our church. That is the nature of the spiritual gifting, right? My gifts are different than your gifts. We all have gifts, but they are different from one another, which guarantees that there will be some people who are better at certain things than others. Right? He expects that there will be people who don't sing as well, people who don't learn as quickly, people who don't listen as well, people who can't memorize Scripture as well or find a Bible passage as quickly, people who don't care for others as well, people who can't cook for the church as well, 
so many different things. And, and the point is, we are not to be rude or arrogant or boastful about it because each person here is a beloved child of God, created in His image, just as we are. It does not insist on its own way. Well, this is interesting because I think it means Paul seems to expect that there will be people in our church with whom we will disagree. And when we do, love means we don't always have to win the argument, even if we're right. Now, let me put an at my asterisk on that to set, head off any emails, right? This is not saying we compromise on core truths of the faith. But there are so many things in a church that are not at the essential core of the faith and the doctrine that are matters of preference and tradition and custom. I think this is what he has in mind here about not insisting on its own way. Sometimes we are going to be faced with a choice. We can be right or we can be loving. Which will we choose? It is not irritable or resentful. I don't think Paul would have mentioned this if he wasn't expecting people in church to irritate us sometimes or to occasionally do sinful things that we would be tempted to resent. But Paul says we can't go there. Love holds us to a higher standard. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We wouldn't need these reminders if other believers weren't going to sometimes make us bear things we shouldn't have to bear. We believe things about them that we shouldn't shouldn't need to have to believe because it should be taken for granted. To hope things for them that we shouldn't have to hope and to endure things from them that we should never be asked to endure. But love demands that we do these things even when other Christians let us down. Paul's message seems to be that a perfect church, you know, the one that's completely full with perfect people and never has conflict, that one, he seems to say that one's a myth. That every church is going to have some messiness and brokenness about it, and some more than others, because we are still a messy, broken people this side of heaven. Paul's message is that when the going gets tough, the tough get busy loving the people who made it tough in the first place. And once again, we see that dynamic that we saw three weeks ago when we talked about unity, that, that loving one another is a choice. It is an act of will. We choose to be patient. We choose to be kind and humble and deferential and supportive. That love is not a feeling or an emotion. We don't have to like one another to love one another. That love is a choice and an action. That we choose to believe, that we choose to hope, that we choose to bear, that we choose to endure, even when the other person doesn't deserve it. Because God does all those things towards us. And we don't deserve that. But just as we saw three weeks ago, 
Our will is not enough to sustain us through all the ups and downs of dealing with other sinful human beings. We can have the best of intentions, but once we start coming into contact with others, friction will arise. But note that these qualities that Paul describes about love map very strongly to the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as we discussed it, we experience this fruit of the Spirit in an increasing way as we build our relationship with the Holy Spirit through prayer, through worship, through ministry, and through the study of God's Word. So where does that leave us this morning? If love is the most important virtue, and if it is both an act of will and an act of the Holy Spirit, then I'd suggest we've probably got some work to do. And this morning, that work is to examine ourselves. See, we are about to observe the Lord's Supper. We are going to remember the suffering and death of our Lord and Savior on a Roman cross. We will remember the suffering and the death, and that he chose it because he loved us the way that Paul describes love here in chapter 13. He chose to go to that cross, though he certainly did not deserve to be there, so that through his sacrifice our sins could be forgiven. This morning we remember that love, we remember that sacrifice, and we remember his body, which was beaten, and whipped, and crucified, broken for your sins and for mine. We remember his blood poured out for your sins and for mine. We remember a terrible and humiliating death so that we could have life everlasting through faith in him. Though Jesus never sinned, he took all our sin upon himself. Our trivial sins... Right, our stupid sins, the what were we thinking, our shameful sins and, and our terrible sins, all taken upon himself, so we would not have to bear them ourselves. But before we do this, before we share as a body in the bread and the cup, Paul commands us in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves so we do not eat or drink in an unworthy manner. We often use, and I know for a fact from the early service, we will again today use the words of chapter 11 when we observe the Lord's Supper. But we seldom reflect on the context in which Paul is writing those words. You see, Paul in chapter 11 is chastising the Corinthians for the terrible, sinful, and unloving way that they're coming together for the Lord's Supper. Their fellowship was so broken and unloving that God was punishing them with sickness and even death for the unworthy manner in which they were, they were observing this event. And so I'm going to ask that we take a few minutes. I'm going to wrap this up. We'll take a few minutes and then I'll close in prayer. And we're going to use it to examine ourselves and to pray silently. All right, the qualities of love are up there on the screen. And I want you to use this time to examine yourself in light of those, just as Paul commands. 
Are there areas where your love falls short? Right? Your love in the church, your love in your family, your love in the world. Are there people in this body of believers towards whom you harbor unloving attitudes and behaviors? So let's examine ourselves. You can pray from your seat or there will be sufficient time if you want to come up and pray in the front. But let's examine ourselves and ask God to reveal the flaws and failures in our love. And then I urge each of you to repent of these unloving attitudes and behaviors. I will certainly be repenting of mine. And ask for God's forgiveness, for he wants to forgive us. He is faithful to forgive. After the service, I would encourage you to seek reconciliation and forgiveness with anyone towards whom you are harboring unloving feelings. But for now, let's go to the Lord in prayer and examine ourselves. Thank <laughs> you.